From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to Open Line Friday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. Always looking forward to uh, hearing from you because you are a very important part of this program uh, where you can ask any question of uh, the host du jour. And today, that host du jour, because it's Friday, is our very own Vice President for Theology, Colin Donovan. How are you? Hey, Tom. Pretty good. Doing well. I'm, I'm uh, glad that you are doing well. Uh, you know, we are still in the, uh, still in the Easter season, aren't we? We are. We have a number of weeks left to go, and yeah. uh, so it's still time to celebrate and be grateful to the Lord for uh, the gift of redemption yeah. and the hope of resurrection that came with that gift. And so we have a lot to be thankful for. And of course, the Mass is the great way to give thanks because it is uh, Eucharistia Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners who may not be regular goers to Mass on Sunday, once you Get your own self down the road and uh, give thanks to the Lord for his great and tremendous gifts of creation, redemption, and our sanctification. Yeah, consider that our personal invitation to you. Exactly. All right. Well, we're only the mouthpiece. He's asking. Absolutely. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Colin Donovan, 833-288-EWTN. Three nine eight six. Now, if you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code. In most cases, that's going to be the number one. And then 205-271-2985. Or, as we heard a moment ago, you can also shoot us an email, openline at EWTN.com. <clears throat> Excuse me. Openline at EWTN.com. In the subject line, be sure you put either Friday or Colin or Theology so that we can make sure that we can um, put the right question to the right host. I'm going to lead off with an email here from Carl. This is uh, fascinating here. What are some good questions that we can ask people who don't believe in absolute truth? Uh, well, I guess uh, there may be something close to them that they think is absolutely true. Um, I, I would say most people are not going to deny truth when you're talking about abstractions or physical laws, mm-hmm. which justice would be one, sure. or love. People believe in love. They think that that's true. That's something authentic. Mm-hmm. Justice, uh, they presumably b- believe in the law of gravity, you know, we can send spacecraft uh, now outside the solar system even or beyond the, the edges of it because we're able to navigate using gravity and the ballistic forces to get where we want to go. Yeah. So there are things which are true in the natural order that people take for granted every day. So I think it, it gets down to trying to convince them that there are truths in the spiritual order that across generations all people have agreed with. Mm-hmm. Not all people necessarily agree with ideas of justice. We know this today because the, the great debate of the day, abortion, uh, it would seem patent to, to a rational person, I would think, and especially to a believer, uh, that human life beginning at conception, unless we wish to make human life from beginning to its end subject to the will of others, 
ought to be protected, ought to be recognized and, and dignified uh, as being human, even if it's frail, even if it's weak, even if it lacks consciousness, such as the children in the womb do, uh, even if it lacks degrees of formation that we, we view as you know, part of the completeness of man. Because in many ways, we're all in various degrees of completeness. So to, to talk from the point of view of things that people of all generations uh, have agreed with, mm-hmm. this used to be called the perennial philosophy, the thing which you could find individuals of different religions, backgrounds, and even no religions uh, across time from an Aristotle to mm-hmm. uh, Moses Mamamides or a or uh, Avicenna, uh, uh, an Islamic scholar in the Middle Ages, to a Thomas Aquinas, uh, Albert the Great. Things where reason tells us the truth about human nature mm-hmm. or about the nature of friendship or the nature of what justice is, justice even on the simplest level of, you know, if I borrow something, I must give it back. That's justice. It's what is due. Mm-hmm. And once we recognize what is due to a thing, we recognize a larger concept of justice. What is due to a thing that is living. What it do is due to a thing that is hungry, in need of clothing or, or other things. That we have debts of justice to individual people in, per, in conditions of need. That the criminal has debt of justice to society for taking a life or stealing property. We take these things for granted, but they're spiritual truths. They may depend upon mere material acts, but they're spiritual truths. And so, therefore, it's important to recognize that there are, order, there are truths in the spiritual order as well as, say, in the natural order, mm-hmm. such as science uh, would discover or uh, economic laws or whatever, whatever the case may be. Uh, so I think just to get that discussion going, you will find some commonality fairly quickly and that you can build upon. And so that would be a way to proceed. And only far down the road can you get into the idea of, well, is there more beyond what we see? And if there is, might we know something about that? And now you're into revelation. You're beyond simply the vague vagaries of an Aristotle or another who says, well, there has to be a greater cause than the natural causes we observe. Uh, So you lead the person down that way, and I think uh, you will have good fruit. Uh, if they're not listening to you, if they if they won't carry on that discussion or see any commonality there, then they're they're probably simply not open to it. And what's left yeah. to you is prayer. Yeah, uh, and that's always open. And that's Carl, always open. Carl, yes. thank you so much for your question. Colin, have you uh, checked your blood pressure lately? I think I've got a, a a good test for you here. What's that? Okay, this is from Gerald. BP test. I'm writing that down. Yeah, this actually Gerard. Excuse me. Gerard says I recently went to a Catholic church that had low gluten wafers and alcohol-free wine for the celebration of the Eucharist. Does this affect the Eucharist in a negative way, and does it matter? Yes. Uh, low gluten. The church has approved it. This was a, a, a decision which in the 90s, I believe, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith uh, acknowledged that you couldn't have a no-gluten because essential gluten is an element of wheat and the other, right. co- other grains. Right. Uh, and so, therefore, it's part of the nature of uh, wheat <clears throat> products and, therefore, of bread mm-hmm. uh, to have gluten. But you, by processes which reduce the gluten to make it safe who have to, for those who use gluten, that that still 
could Eucharistic breads could be made for that, mm-hmm. which would be valid when used for the celebration of the Eucharist. Okay. The case of wine uh, is uh, a little bit different. Uh, the church goes by something Aquinas and other medieval philosophers said, and that is, what is the common estimation of a thing? Wine is different than grape juice. There is technically no such thing as an alcohol-free wine. Wine is something that has fermented, and the process of fermentation leads directly to the alcohol molecule. Mm-hmm. It may be, again, as in the glow-gluten uh, minuscule. The church calls that product mustum, in which there is the beginning of fermentation, which is then stopped. Properly properly d- done uh, cases of that or, or av- those kinds of products are available, mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to say, that have a certification mm-hmm. that they meet the conditions that are necessary for a sacramental wine. In other words, that first fermi- fermentation. Mm-hmm. If, it, if it is alcohol-free entirely, then it's not wine at all. It's grape juice, and the church says that is invalid. That has this effect. The invalidation of one of the elements, in this Mm -hmm. case the wine, Mm -hmm. would mean that there is no mass and the fruits of the mass are there. There are different theories regarding the remaining element, the bread. Mm -hmm. Some say that if there is no mass, then the remaining element is not valid either. That doesn't seem to be the majority opinion. Those who received communion from that element would Uh be. There would not be receiving our Lord. There would not be, however, a sacrifice there. There would not be the fruits of the Mass and and being present at the the sacrifice of Calvary, representation of Calvary. That requires the consecration of the two elements. Uh, That, of course, is a serious liturgical abuse and should never, ever be done. So I would certainly mention this to the priest if you have attraction to be able to do that without any ballistics involved, I would mention that to him that uh, he should really discuss that with the chancery uh, to confirm that this invalidates that mass. And other obligations flow from an invalid mass, like stipends that have been accepted for that mass and so on, uh, have not been fulfilled. All right. Very good. And I'm glad that your blood pressure is under control. You handled yeah. that very well. Well, you know, it's not the first time in uh, 25 years of doing this we've That's had true. that question. That's exactly. true. Gerard, uh, thank you so much for your question. To be serious about it, we've got phone calls coming up from Bruce in Ohio, Chelsea in Virginia. There's a line open for you at 833-288-EWTN for Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Glad you're here on uh, Open Line Friday here on EWTN with Colin Donovan to answer your questions. And we do have a couple of lines open at the moment, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We occasionally talk about books on EWTN, 
And of course, today is no exception. And I want to tell you about a wonderful new book from EWTN Publishing, Living Calm, Mastering Anger and Frustration by Dr. Ray Garendi. Now, this is the book you need to master your anger if you've got some anger issues in your life so that your anger won't master you. Dr. Ray unpacks the many types of anger and the types of people who suffer most from anger. You'll learn by why feelings aren't neutral, whether anger is a product of your nature or your nurture. You'll also learn the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger and why those closest to us can anger us the most. So do check it out. It's a great book, Living Calm, Mastering Anger and Frustration by Dr. Ray Garendi, available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. Thinking of a quote in the Bible that talks about uh, righteous anger. Seems to me there was a moment of uh, Jesus in the temple. That's true. Uh, He had something most of us lack when we think we're righteously angry. What's that? Uh, And that is he knew what the person was thinking. All the way. All the way to the core. every detail. We have to be a little more suspect. Obviously, there are things that make us angry that are outright injustices that we talked about earlier, like abortion. Seems like a very timely book. Yeah, it does. You know, mankind has been struggling with uh, anger issues since the very beginning. But my goodness, uh, the world that we're living in right now with uh, un- unprovoked war and, and everything else. and uh, there, there is that. Um, I, I think the images we've seen in the last few days of potential reaction to overturning of Roe v. Wade, yes. if that should actually be down the road, we don't know for certain, but seems likely. Um, you know, he, hear the expression rage machine. There are quite a few rage machines out there now. Yep, yep. You know, it shows the degree to which, and you see it even in the church, you know, people object to what the Holy Father says or something. They go mm. into a rage about it. It doesn't mean there's anything necessarily false in there uh, in in particular cases, but people immediately go to the emotional reaction without thinking through, yeah. okay, what is at stake here? What is it that we can do to respond to this in an intelligent way to convince the other? Because frankly, rage is not, whether it's a war of invasion Mm -hmm. or whether it's, you know, punching your interlocutor in the nose with your fist, really doesn't accomplish much. No, No. it doesn't. So we do need to get back to a level of discourse, I think, in around the world, but in uh, certainly in our political society here in the United States and in other countries as well. So absolutely, uh, and in the church especially, we have a higher obligation to communion with our brothers and sisters in the faith, even when we think that they are absolutely and categorically wrong. Mm-hmm. An obligation if not unsimilar to, if not superior to, that which we have to our siblings whom we love dearly in in the same boat. Yeah. There's an analogy there which is real. Yeah, I I think about uh, people who look at us uh, and and they say, wow, he, this this guy is a Catholic. Is that is that what a what a Catholic believes? Is that how a Catholic should should be behaving right. or, or thinking? Yeah. Uh, so, well. Anyway. Well, and you go back to the early church, and one of the things which the ancient Romans, uh, the pagans, mm-hmm. were impressed by uh, in the church, and that was see how they love each other. Yes. You know the this 
this reaching out. There was the poor and needy, and the church has done that in every generation and continues to do it. And, for example, in the case of Roe v. Wade, if it is, it is un, it overturned, mm-hmm. the church has, for since Roe v. Wade, undertaken apostolates to help women in need who can't don't feel that they can deal with another child or mm-hmm. a, or a first child because of their youth or other situations or or whatever it is to help them in in, in multiple ways whether adoption or prenatal postnatal care sure. the church does that regularly there are apostolates constructed to do that but i'm sure if this is overturned and those numbers were to get larger the church would would Endeavor to do that all the more, and I think Bishop Laurie today came out, Archbishop Laurie, uh, pro-life uh, committee of the Bishop's Conference, mm-hmm. making that very point that the church is prepared to help all women in trouble. Pre, Pre-Roe v. Wade, post-Roe v. Wade, and then post-again Roe v. Wade in the sense of no more Roe v. Wade. Please God. Uh, yeah. Please God. Yeah. Uh, so the church is there. That's her responsibility and her duty, and she, she, will, she will help people in need. And that's, that's an absolute certainty. Yes, indeed. If you're ready now, let's get to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We begin today with Bruce, a first-time caller from Ohio, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hey, Bruce, what's on your mind today? Bruce in Ohio, are you there? Why don't we put him on hold, if you would, please, Michael? Michael McCall, our producer this afternoon. We're going to go now to uh, Chelsea, a first-time caller from Virginia. Hey, Chelsea, what's on your mind today? Hi. um, So I was just wondering, is apostolic secession outside of the Catholic Church ever considered to be valid? Um, for example, I understand that we as Catholics recognize the consecration of the Eucharist in the Orthodox churches to be valid. Correct. But my, my ultimate question is, if you have invalid apostolic secession outside the Catholic Church, then how can you have valid and lawful sacraments? Uh, be- the because their apostolic succession is valid. Um, the the church views them as being in schism but they have the, uh, the doctrinally with you know some things that orthodox and catholics have quibbled on over the the centuries um the same faith that we have they have the faith of the first millennium uh the catholic church has uh, de- been able to define that a little bit more clearly because we possess the petrine uh, office the papal magisterium but they had from the first millennium and and our union as the the one great church of that millennium they have valid uh valid apostolic orders and therefore valid sacraments and unless they by by their fault fail to hand those on with the same intentions with which they were given they will continue to have and so that's why the church uh, considers them to be uh, in schism from the point of view of governance and their recognition of the papal authority, mm-hmm. but uh, to otherwise to be a church having valid orders, uh, valid sacrament, or, uh, and communion of charity among, among the, the, the clergy. And so in that sense, they are, are, are a church as we are a church. The Anglican Church uh, was the first to sort of try to maintain that without maintaining it. So what there they did is initially they had valid apostolic succession. Obviously, 
the priests and bishops, the first priests and bishops after Henry's break with the church, uh, were validly ordained. There's no question about it. And they were ordained for the purpose for which the Catholic Church today's and the Orthodox churches continue to ordain their clergy. And that is for the sake of the sacraments, the sacrifice of the Mass being especially, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so that's handed on in holy orders, and the Orthodox Church do that, we do that. What the Anglican Church did is they changed their intention by changing the form of the liturgy of ordination, uh, particularly during the time of Cranmer and then and Queen Elizabeth, so that from that date in which that form was used, no one who was ordained was validly ordained deacon, priest, or bishop. They didn't have the purpose that had been for 1,500 years in East and West been the purpose of the Sacrament of Holy Orders. Mm -hmm. They stopped talking about sacrifice, the Mass being for sacrifice. Uh, They stopped talking about the the priesthood in the the kind of language that uh, is used by Catholics and Orthodox. And so they lost apostolic succession, and they continued on with the lay ministry, if you will. Uh-huh. And Pope Leo XIII specifically stated that their sacraments were I- invalid for those reasons. Uh, there has been a, a movement in, in the Anglican Church since the early 1800s. We can think of people like Cardinal Newman, uh, who started out as an Anglican seeking the truth on these matters and coming into the church by his study of the fathers of the church because he was trying to sustain the, the, uh, the, the belief of Anglicans that they were the, one of the three branches of Catholic Christianity, the Orthodox branch, the Roman branch, and the Anglican branch. And he ended up disproving it and becoming part of the Catholic branch or <laughs> the church, as we, yes. we like to call it. Yes. Uh, so uh, they have the sacraments because they have valid apostolic succession. Uh, and they could, in a heartbeat, be in complete reunion with the church, with, with the Bishop of Rome. Uh, they have a considerable degree of a union. Uh, there has been a lot of conversation and fraternal relations between the Orthodox hierarchy and the and the Catholic hier- hierarchy in the last uh, since Vatican II, uh-huh. and these are all positive things. And the Lord is reserving to Himself the day that we will be one Church, one faith, one sacraments in totality. Uh, and God willing, that will be sooner rather than later. Yeah, pray for unity every day. Thanks for your call, Chelsea. Here now is Bruce, a first-time caller in Ohio. Bruce, what's on your mind today? Um, what's on my mind is Jesus was talking about uh, call no man on earth your father as far as spiritually, and I was wondering why do the Catholics call themselves fathers, and why, because that, that's always been like a coming mm-hmm. back to me. Sure. Um, well, here, just a second, let me pull up that text. It's in Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, just give me two seconds here. It's called, he says in Matthew 23, verse 9, Call no one on earth your father, you have but one father in heaven. No use of the word spiritually there. That kind of interpretation is like, Luther's by faith alone, when the word alone is not in the text. So, if we're to understand this literally, we 
if we have a dad, we can't call him father. I guess we can't call him daddy either, since that's uh, the the comparative yeah. to Abba. That's uh-huh. the you know the loving form of call the informal loving way of calling your father mm-hmm. your father. So what what does it mean? Well, he he talks about those who are c- competing opinions regarding the faith, the doctrine of the faith. And he refers in the context of rabbi and teacher all things which he himself was called and which were commonly used uh, in that day and are still used today in Judaism. Uh, St. Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel and no doubt called him father or master or rabbi. Sure. And Paul himself was called rabbi. Okay. Well, and that's, and, what it's, that's what it's all about then. Okay. That, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Bruce, I uh, hope it makes sense to you as well. Thank you so much for your call. In a moment, Greg in Michigan, Carlin in Texas, and a couple lines open at 833-288-EWTN for Open Line Friday. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Still time for your phone call to Colin Donovan at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Colin, before the break, we were uh, talking mm-hmm. with Bruce, who had a, a very important question. It's probably on the top 10 list of, uh, yeah. of you know, yeah. why do Catholic, you know, why do Catholics call a priest father when Jesus said, call no man father? And you began to unpack that. Could we talk a little more about that? Sure. Uh Look at it this way. The context of that, uh, what our Lord said in Matthew, is in Mm -hmm. the context of the different schools of rabbinic theology, Mm -hmm. which were about, uh, you had Sadducees, you had the, you know, the the Pharisees and so on. And even within the Pharisees, there's no magisterial teacher. Uh, in fact, one of the things which, which scholars, Jewish scholars study today is, you know, the difference, uh, different lines of the different rabbis and their, their commentaries. And usually the conclusion of what it is a comparison of the, you know, commentaries or of a particular rabbi, favorite rabbi or mm-hmm. something like that. And so he was basically pointing out there that in, in the true theology, you there is no man should be called this because it's not a question of him being your ultimate father. Who is our ultimate father? We learn that in 1 Corinthians uh, 4.15 when he says that all fatherhood is founded in God. So fatherhood founded in God can be recognized. You're a father, I'm a father, and our fatherhood is founded in God, who is the one who created us and gave us the power to create other human beings mm-hmm. along with our spouses. Mm-hmm. And so we have a legitimate fatherhood from God on the natural level. There is a legitimate from God fatherhood from God on the spiritual level. And we know this because St. Paul apparently had no difficulty calling himself father on this level. In 1 Corinthians 15, we say, Though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So true spiritual fatherhood comes through the gospel, comes through Christ. Mm. Now, who has that? Can any Tom, Dick, and Harry, or any Mary, Jane, or Betty, for that matter, stand up and say, I'm your spiritual father or I'm your spiritual mother. Yes, we do have godfathers and mothers who fulfill a certain role. That's certainly true. But the real fatherhood is that who has custody 
of the divine mysteries. And that comes through the apostolic succession we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. From the Father, through Christ, to the apostles he appointed, to the bishops and the presbyters that they appointed, down to our day, we can find who the spiritual fathers are whose fatherhood comes from God, as St. Paul says, and as St. Paul said of himself, a true fatherhood. So that is the way the church has understood it. I think, I don't know if the Orthodox would express it in that way, but in the same idea that there is a ministry, a mission, a missio, Christ was sent, the apostles were sent, the bishops were sent, they sent the priests, mm -hmm. Those that's our spiritual authority of our fathers, spiritual fathers. You know, as the devils were wont to say to, uh, you know, some of the, attempted exorcists of their day. Well, Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. Who are you? Who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Pope, I know. The Bishop, I know. Who's this Luther character? Or who's this <laughs> other one? Yeah. No, seriously, there is a spiritual fatherhood, and we know where we can find it. Okay. Glad we could. Uh, thank you for continuing to unpack that. And Bruce, thanks again for your call. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Our congratulations going out to our dear friends and uh, family members, really, at Covenant Network Catholic Radio. This week, celebrating 25 years with EWTN. They have grown from their very first station in St. Louis to now 40-plus frequencies in Missouri, Indiana, Illinois, Oklahoma, and Louisiana. Congratulations to our dear friends, Tony and Teresa Holman, and their wonderful team there at Covenant Network for 25 years of partnership with EWTN Radio. Love them to death. All right, back to the phones right now. Here is Greg in Michigan. Greg is listening uh, to us on Holy Family Radio. Greg, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi, Colin. Quick question for you. Mm -hmm. I have a, a good friend uh, who's a I believe Antiochian Orthodox mm -hmm. church member, and um, wife is a fallen away Catholic, I guess, because she attends that church. But, you know, we're real good friends, and I'd just like to be more educated on the differences on the different Orthodox um, faiths, I guess. Mm -hmm. If there's a book you could recommend, or you know, I've read little snippets in this book or that book, Sure. We had a split back in 1054 or something, but I want maybe a full mm. book treatment of it. You know, which okay. one we go yeah. to? Um, I got a little re a book recently. Um, it's in my office. Sadly, I can't remember the title of it. That was uh, an effort to at least give you some, a view of the of the whole landscape in that regard. Uh, I'll see what I can find it and maybe mention it next week. Okay. Um, I, I think you could. There are also some many good historical uh, things. There's some particular authors like Carl Adam. Mm -hmm. uh, Warren Carroll wrote a, a number of uh, historical writings dealing with the um, with the church history. That's usually the way, to, the place to go because we tend to color this a dogmatic question. You know, is there, and there are obviously the differences on the on the Trinity and how the persons process and what the meaning of terms is and mm -hmm. what the filioque in the creed of the Roman Church uh, impl implicates and 
Uh, does it properly express God? And all these kinds of questions. Those, I think, would be tend to be too complex for the ordinary reader. They're pretty complex even for a specialist because they, you know, they're getting down deeply into uh, into the subject. Sure. But I think a generally a, a good church history, uh, like Warren Carroll's and um, some others, um, again, names escaping me at the moment, th- this would be the best way to go. I think, uh, I don't know if our, our religious catalog, but there are good, certainly good Orthodox uh, book sites that you can go and find church histories. And that will give you, generally, Catholic church histories are done a little bit different than, say, you know, an account of the Revolutionary War or something like that. Because it's it's tied tied up with the world with the events of the day, mm-hmm. which are often as important, if not more important, than the doctrinal issues, and well, usually deals with the development of doctrine questions that were involved too. So you get a picture of both of those. Mm-hmm. So sure, there were some doctrinal, you know, umbrage taken by both sides in respect of the schism, Great Schism of ten fifty four. But there are also what you would have to call ecclesiastical political issues there. And that's what the church histories will give you well. You know, and I think the point I made earlier about the fraternal relations that have been increasing between East and West, um, somewhat uh, developing also because of the churches reuniting with Rome over the last several centuries, uh, our our Eastern churches, Uh with the exception of the Maronites, who were never ununited with Rome. Uh, but also, I think, the, out of the Vatican Council, a deliberate effort to hold in common everything that we can hold in common as we try to settle the lingering differences. And that's just such a great, uh, a great thing. And John Paul always was breathing about but with both lungs. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, Benedict and Francis, as both of them, have wanted to you know, advance this as well. Sadly, we have world events going on today, which makes that difficulty difficult with mm-hmm. parts of orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. But there are other parts of orthodoxy it doesn't have that problem with. So uh, I think you have to look. Yes, the doctrinal questions are important, but often the historical circumstances are equally, if not more important. How could they not? How could they not be of yeah, an influence? They, they, they are because they color people's perceptions mm-hmm. of the seriousness. Sure. If you decide, look at even our, our, the, the, church, uh, the Roman church today. If you decide that some complaint against the hierarchy, whether local or universal, is so big and so great in your mind that the thing that you can do effectively is to break with the church, it may not be a logical decision. It is to your mind, but it may be an emotional decision. And I think emotions have colored a lot of these questions. So a good church history, and there are a number of them out there. Very good. And I'll try to get the name of this book that I have uh, on the show next week. Very good. Greg, there you go. Thank you so much uh, for your call. Let's go to Carlin, a first-time caller from Texas, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Carlin, what's on your mind today? Yes, I, when you were talking about wine versus uh, grape juice a while ago, mm-hmm. it got me thinking about uh, my Church of Christ friends that mm-hmm. say that Jesus only that Jesus was using grape juice at the Last Supper because it was Passover and they couldn't have leaven. And so 
I'd like you to comment on that and, and why why grape juice isn't valid, why it has to be fine. Okay. Um, do you know any Jews? Ask them whether they use grape juice or, you know, Manischewitz or some other version of, uh, of wine at the, at the Passover. Yeah. The, there's no tradition in Judaism of, of grape juice. It's wine. So historically, I, I guess you could hold the position that, well, Jesus didn't, uh, maybe because he was a Nazarite or something. I've heard that argument. But as a Jew, that, that, that's a non-starter. That's a non-starter. So the presence of wine with a little water, because that's what the ancients did with wine to, uh, to dilute it. Mm-hmm. They drank the wine because, not just because it's good, but because it was potable and it killed bacteria, which yeah. they didn't know existed, but they knew that water could get corrupted. Mm-hmm. And so we drink wine, but sure. we put a little water in there so it's not too strong. Uh, you know, you can drink more of it that way, uh, et cetera. Uh, but that was, a, that was the tradition. It wasn't grape juice. Okay. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, there's 2,000 years of practice east and west of just exactly what's involved in this. Mm-hmm. What makes one think, sitting in the 20th century or the 21st, or whenever a particular denomination was founded, that they have a better insight into this than did 2,000 years of Christianity, much less 3,000 years of Judaism. Yes, indeed. Uh, so it, it really doesn't make any sense, but sometimes you can't win a fight like that because of the certainty that I just talked about in yep. another context. Yep. Yep. People have a certain fixed idea in their mind, and they're not going to let go, and they're not going to let communion with others get in the way of holding on to it. Well, you know, there was that great philosopher, Mo Howard of the Three Stooges, who, who once said, uh, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. Exactly. I've always liked that. Carlin, thank <laughs> you so much uh, for your call. Always glad to quote the Three Stooges on Catholic Radio. Anyway, it's uh, Open Line Friday. That's here. earlier in the week. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. So uh, tonight on EWTN News in Depth with Monse Alvarado, uh, the team will be discussing the Supreme Court leak. Everybody's just talking about it that this week. I guess so. <laughs> on the expected ruling on abortion and a decision protecting religious expression. Also, the team will be investigating the military chaplain controversy in Canada. What are we talking about? Find out tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, on EWTN radio and television. Let's go now to uh, George in Buffalo, New York, very close to Canada, listening right there on uh, Holy Family Radio, I believe, or possibly the Stations of the Cross. George, what's on your mind today? Hey, <laughs> right, Canada. Hey. Yes, indeed. <laughs> hey. um, why did uh, I'll give you? I'm going to tell you my question, and I'm going to give you my little spiel, and then you, I'll hang up, and then you can answer it. But okay. uh, why did why did a hundred thousand priests quit around Vatican II? And my my thoughts is the third secret of uh, Lucia. Okay. okay. All right. I, I, I take it that was the full stop. There. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I can give you a little bit more precise information. Okay. Um, as some of our listeners will know if they've listened long enough and I've babbled long, long, long enough. Uh, I attended a seminary in British Columbia. Uh, and so in the 1980s. And I remember we had a retreat one time. And uh, a priest, uh, I believe he was of the Vancouver Diocese, if I'm not mistaken, 
Uh, he he spoke to us. Of course, the purpose of a retreat for seminarians is to inculcate habits that are, are good habits of self-reflection and self-discipline, and and also to perhaps increase you know knowledge of the Lord and knowledge of their their future future vocation. Although I didn't fulfill that part, I have sort of a a, a quasi pastoral role, yes, if you will. Yes. Um, and he made this point because he was, they had established a board for Western Canada to handle all of the requests in the 70s of priests who wanted to leave the church. Okay. He said there was many personal reasons. The one common reason was they stopped praying the Liturgy of the Hours. Wow. Now, what is the Liturgy of the Hours, people will ask. Divine office, bravery, it goes by other names. But it's the obligation which secular priests and also religious, uh, both priests and male and female brothers Mm -hmm. and sisters, uh, have to pray multiple times a day. We can think of it from the scriptural example of the apostles going up at the third, the sixth, and the ninth hour. The liturgy of the hours are at dawn and at dusk, and at the third or basically 9 Uh a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. And some uh, some more contemplative communities celebrate all of those hours, but the secular clergy generally have to do morning prayer and evening prayer, you know, and and night prayer. Yeah. I think they may be readings, officer readings as well. So they stop doing this. Prayer is the fuel of the apostolate. The apostolate starts getting weak. What do they do? They start fulfilling. Not fulfilling their obligations or looking for distractions. Well, need we go any further in terms of what was a very common distraction for priests in the 60s and 70s? First, fervor leaving can be just another, uh, another, it could be sufficient excuse to say, hey, do I really want to do this for the next 40 years and to leave? But then there's the attraction, you know, there's the, you know, the nice DRE that works in my parish or, you know, some, you know, female in the parish, single woman or whatever. Uh, And so it leads to other things. Those followed from, the key was they stopped fulfilling the duties obliged by the church, Mm -hmm. particularly the Liturgy of the Hours. So did Our Lady of Fatima suggest this? No, well, I suppose in some way. There is an internal dissolution of the church. What is described in the, the, the last vision of Fatima, the one which was revealed, the third secret, has to do with the, uh, with the external, that the persecution of the church. Uh, I think that's characterized by John Paul II. I think with Cardinal Ratzinger and then Pope Benedict, it's clear that uh, that, that is, like Scripture, an exemplary case the church will never stop persecuting the world until the world is converted. Uh, and so we're going to see that again and again. So that will have other fulfillments down through history, just as Scripture had other fulfillments. The fall of Jerusalem presaging what will come towards the end of the world as well, but other historical cases where there are little antichrists persecuting the church and uh-huh, so on. And uh-huh. we've, we've had many antichrists that are a lot of self-predicted. Yes, indeed. So I think, yeah, in a broad sense, Fatima covers all of those things because the church uh, uh, has many internal problems related from a lack of fervor, a lack of love of Christ, uh, Pope Benedict's great 
desire to inculcate in all of us, in the church and in the clergy especially, when those things die off, when you stop going to confession and you stop going to Mass, when you stop doing fast and abstinence as a lake person, uh, because, well, you know, I don't really need that or I'm too busy or whatever, all of these things lead to, you know, they don't, they're not necessarily yet there, but they dispose you to the big fall, mm. which takes you away from Christ in the church. Right, right. And that happens to clergy, clergy and laity alike. Yeah, sadly. Appreciate your call. Let's go now to Deirdre on line three, listening to us in Baton Rouge on the Great Catholic Community Radio. Deirdre, what's on your mind today? Hi, how are you? Very good. I, I was just calling, and I was um, trying to find out. My son is about to become a father, and he kind of suffered with anger, and I just want to get him this book, because, you know, he's an insurance agent mm -hmm. and uh, a broker right now, running his own business, and I think this would be a very good gift for him for Father's Day. And could you elaborate it just a little bit more, because the word father is a very important word about when you call a man father. Yeah, and I, I thought I'd made that clear, that there are two kinds of fatherhood coming from God in the natural order and the supernatural. Mm -hmm. uh, a man having a child, you know, I'd be very upset if my daughter stopped, started calling me Colin rather than... <laughs> she stopped Daddy, which I guess at 12 is not I'm to so be sorry. surprised, so but sorry. I love Daddy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm accepting Dad. Sure, sure. I'm accepting Dad. Uh, natural fatherhood comes from God, and I was just making the point about spiritual fatherhood. So no qualms over that at all. Our Lord was talking in that spiritual context that schools of theology or of religion or denominations which lack the spiritual, the commission from God the Father given through Christ in the church mm -hmm. have no entitlement to spiritual fatherhood. And so that's, and for the most part, they don't claim that they do. Right. You know, it's pastor or something else. Right. So in the, in the Catholic context, it makes sense in the spiritual sense because that authority comes by way of mission from Christ through the church, through the hierarchy. Uh, and no qualms about calling your dad, dad, father, or yeah. daddy, or whatever it is, or papa, or whatever. Yeah. No trouble. Very good. Uh, Deirdre, thanks so much for your call. Mm -hmm. Here is Lori now in Washington, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hi, Lori. What's on your mind today? Hi there. Um, I had a question regarding uh, the Apocrypha. Mm -hmm. um, I understand that you know in our Catholic Bible, we include the Apocrypha, yet our, our Protestant brothers have chosen to not include that. And so I have two questions. Number one, mm -hmm. what was it? that made them decide to remove it? And number two, how do they justify it based upon the, the, I guess, the injunction in Revelation that says that anyone who takes away or adds to God's Word is, in the vernacular, big trouble? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, of course, that's pretty nonspecific. There's no canon there. Uh, and this is why the question of authority, I'm talking about the spiritual authority of the clergy, uh, who are you going to look to except those who have spiritual authority from God the Father through Christ to define what the canon is? And the Church did that. Uh, it was a slow process. It was not uh, end of the first century. Everybody knew what the Bible, the Biblia, was. It just wasn't the case. 
Uh, we at Christianity probably forced the rabbis of Galilee and, and Judea and Samaria to define what the Jewish canon was, at least for Palestine. The Babylonian Jews did their own thing. Mm -hmm. The Alexandrian Jews did their own thing. In fact, the Alexandrian Jews did the world a great favor. They translated the books that they accepted into Greek. So the early church, voila, already had a Greek language uh, books of the Bible Uh that included the deuterocanonical books that the Catholic Church accepts, and even more that we don't accept, some others. Uh, a 51st Psalm, another book of Maccabees, uh, two book, more books of Maccabees, and, and, and some other uh, smaller ones, things. And so the, the Church, if you had accepted the Septuagint entirely, and many Orthodox churches just simply use that. I'm, there, there are differences among them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they have some elements of those extra books in the Bibles that they publish as well. And the Roman Church then established what it was by way of the argument of a couple hundred years from 100 to about 300 when there was starting to be a, a, a canon formed. And then in 380, the Synod of Rome uh, said, was asked, what are the canon books of the Bible? And they listed them. Yeah. And they're the same books that Augustine listed, they're the same books that Trent listed, they're the same books that are in Catholic Bibles today. So it was in a process, but it was a process under authority. What many of the Reformers did, I think Luther did this, he looked to, well, what do the Jews accept? Well, in the 1500s, you're a little late to the game because, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you're dealing with the decision of uh, of rabbis in Galilee in the late late first century that predicated on the existence of Christianity, which they wanted to definitively separate all Jews who accepted Christ out of Judaism. Mm -hmm. So... Why, why post-Christ are you looking to the Jews for that decision? We have authority in the church. We mm-hmm. have the authority to make that decision. The rabbis don't. Jesus said, don't call them father. Why were we looking to those fathers, in quotes, of, of those days, which Jesus excoriated for their diverging opinions? Why are we looking to them? But yet they did. And then some of them had particular reasons. Uh, I think it was Paul... Uh, Luther wanted to throw out James because it talked about not faith alone, but faith in good works. Yeah. You know, faith in charity, we would say, because it's the presence of charity that makes a good work meritorious before God. So, you know, different ones had different reasons, but it's all of it gets back to authority. Who gets to decide what's in the canon? Uh, the church gets to decide. We did. It's remained the same for 1,700 years. Uh, others have disagreed and gone their own way on the matter. And uh, it, it's certainly true that when King James was looking for a Bible, the first one had the deuterocanonical, the second publication did not. So someone got in there and said, hey, you can't do that. Yeah, That's yeah. going to give heart to the Catholics, probably. L- Lori, thanks for your call. Colin Donovan, thank you, sir. You're welcome.